This week on Alternative Fund Insight, energy. What has it been like running an energy-focused hedge fund during the historic turbulence of 2022? Can hedge funds contribute to the climate transition? And should short selling be considered part of ESG? My name is Will Wainwright and this week I discuss all that and more with the co-CIOs of US firm Height Hedge Asset Management. Before we begin, a reminder to check out AlternativeFundInsight.com to check out the latest headlines in hedge funds and private markets. Our most read story last week was an analysis of how Adia, the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund, was investing in alternatives. Also, as we look ahead to 2023, I want to hear from you about what you want from AFI, the guests, the themes, the type of content you want to see more of please email will at alternativefundinsight.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a rating or review on your favourite platform. My guests this week are James Jample, founder and co-CIO, and Matt Niblack, president and co-CIO at Height Hedge Asset Management. Thank you for joining me on AFI today. Maybe we could start with a kind of broad question about the strategy how can market neutral relative value strategies focused on energy provide the alpha that institutional allocators are looking for? Let's start with you, Matt. Sure. So, so first of all, the, the energy sector is a wonderfully target rich environment that I think a lot of institutions are under allocated to. And, and they're not just under allocated to it from the perspective of market exposure, but they're under allocated to it from the perspective of alpha exposure. Um, And and it's target rich for a variety of reasons. Um, One is that there are both cyclical and secular disruptions. And I think many folks are familiar with the cyclicality of the industry, um, as well as the secular disruption of energy transition. And so that combination of things routinely resets the opportunity set. Um, The second is that there's really a lot of opportunity for a manager like ourselves uh, that has built up an infrastructure and expertise over uh, almost two decades to apply a ton of fundamental data points to prosecuting that opportunity. So, you know, really this is a a industry with big data, uh, data on every well, data on every pipeline, every boat, every storage facility, um, as well as qualitative data about individual management teams that we've gotten to know very well um, and other forms of qualitative data. And so that real combination of, of large opportunity, as well as a really large amount of information to process to prosecute the opportunity, makes it a sector that we think will continue to be alpha rich for some time. Mm-hmm. And and James, what about the the data picture? You know, how has that changed since you started the firm? It must be very different now. Oh yeah, there there there, there always has been. Uh, uh, some data available as this space has been regulated in the United States um, uh, and in Canada from the beginning. Mm. Uh, the key is the is the uh, computing power uh, and the brain power that we've been able to collect here to be able to process that data, to to scrape that data, to make sure we have it in real time, to cross check 
against various sources for the same data. Mm -hmm. And then to be able, importantly, to have uh, exceptions flagged automatically so that uh, we can chase down data points that we think are interesting or that might be indicative. I think um, it is a competitive advantage of ours that we've built this system. Uh, we don't think that many will would try to replicate this um, given the nature of our space. As you know, m many will not uh, invest in the space. Many will not trade the space. Uh, and young people especially uh, can be uninterested in the space. Matt, it's, it's a very timely um, moment to be speaking to you, given your focus on, on energy. It's a huge market theme this year. Hey, how has the war in Ukraine and the subsequent volatility affected the market from your perspective? Sure. So I think a lot of the impacts are pretty clear to uh, even a casual observer. Um, obviously, the uh, market for both oil and gas has tightened considerably, especially on the gas side, especially um, internationally. But there's also been some somewhat less obvious impacts. Uh, and, and one is on spreads broadly, um, you know, the value of one thing versus another thing in the energy market. So one of the more visible ones here is obviously natural gas prices in the U.S. versus in Europe. Um, but, but, but another one that's probably gotten less attention is the spread that refiners can make specifically uh, buying oil and refining it into diesel. And, and that has to do with the uh, grade of crude that's available globally shifting um, with some of the impacts on Russia, Canada, the SPR release, et cetera, um, a lot at the same time that demand uh, for diesel in particular has increased dramatically. Um, so we have less supply because of some of those shifts at a, at a time with more demand. Uh, so, so a lot of different uh, spreads have opened up as well as a result of this conflict. I was at a conference last week and they said the two main ways of understanding the changes in energy this year are you know, higher prices by and large and more volatility. So how does that change your job? Sure. So, so risk management has always been an important part of what we do. Uh, you know, volatility in the energy space is not new. There's been a lot of reasons for it. This is this is the latest, uh, but there was volatility, um, you know, previously around the price war between U.S. shale and Saudi Arabia. Um, there's there's volatility whenever there are macro concerns. You know, a couple of years back, there was some concern about growth in China that created some volatility. Um, so volatility is not new, and so the fact that we've been able to be in the market through many cycles has enabled us to really understand how to manage it. And so um, in terms of the job, uh, it, it, it's really put a focus on the risk management side of what we do as much as the alpha side, um, but, it, but it hasn't really changed the toolkit. Um, and so the kinds of things that we do in this environment are we, we tighten up the pairings of the companies that were long versus short. Um, we really monitor the, uh, the realized vol and the, and the um, implied vol of our portfolio. And, and try to make sure that that's staying at, at a reasonable, tolerable level. Um, and, and we're doing all of this with an eye to continuing to maintain the alpha opportunity and not hedge out, um, hedge out the alpha opportunity amid the volatility. And James, this landscape, this, this environment in energy, have you seen anything like it in your career so far? Uh, no, as Matt mentioned, there's been volatility uh, for a very long time. And you know, I can go back to, uh, you know, to 2008, 
and uh, and if you recall how uh, oil prices fell from well into the triple digits uh, down into the 30s even then. Uh, so Matt's right about that. But what I think the, the war is again driving home is the utter unpredictability of these commodity prices. I mean, you can do a lot of fundamental analysis and, and, and try to understand that. But in the end, right, it, it, the fact that, a, they, that two psychopaths, Vladimir Putin and Mohammed bin Salman, have a huge say in the prices makes that, makes that really utterly unpredictable, unpredictable. And if you look at the forecast, go back to when the war started, uh, it was seemed like all the major banks but one were calling for increasing prices during the whole year. And of course, we've only been going down um, since June 1st on, on energy prices. But this, this results for us in just a lot of opportunity uh, because every time the commodity price moves, of course, the securities prices moves, but they move in ways that you know, do not reflect the efficient markets hypothesis. And it sort of shuffles the deck and gives us an opportunity to again put on relative value trades. The key to what we do is to you know, be humble enough to understand that we can't predict the prices to be price takers uh, and then orient the portfolio so that whatever way the price goes, uh, that we are, are able to withstand that and live again to fight another day. So the worst question I can ask you is probably where are energy prices headed next year? Yeah, you know, I, lo- I love to tell people that, uh, you know, they should trust me in, in picking uh, stocks, particularly on a relative basis, but they probably shouldn't trust me in, in terms of the future of of energy prices, but but I'll, I'll take a stab nonetheless. So, um, and the important thing as we go through this is, is it's really going to highlight the volatility here and some of the unpredictable factors um, that can that, that can move this around. Um, but if you start with crude oil, crude oil markets are pretty efficiently linked globally uh, because crude is easy to transport on ships. And so, when you talk about U.S. market, European market, Asian market, you, you're mostly talking about one market. And, and that market is very, very macro dependent right now. So global growth and supply is moderate. Um, that moderate growth will be more than sufficient to handle demand in the case of a tepid or declining economy, um, but will be insufficient to handle demand in a, uh, in a roaring economy. Um, so you know, in that environment, it really all comes down to the economy. And so making a bet on the oil price is not about understanding oil fundamentals as much as it is just making a global macro call. And, you know, our view is there's very few people that are particularly uh, good at that based on based on track records, um, and they would reside in a global macro fund. Um, When it comes to natural gas, I think even a global macro fund might struggle on the international front, because it's really coming down to whether and how Europe deals with its gas shortage. And so d- d- does the war get resolved in some way? If it does, does Russian, uh, Russian gas flow into Europe again? Um, is there sufficient conservation and or a deep recession necessary to destroy enough demand to make that market balance? So again, very tricky, um, a question I wouldn't even trust a global macro fund to answer. Um, when we come to natural gas in the U.S., I think the view is a little bit different because we really have a captive market in the U.S. And so what we've seen this year is that the production engine has been revving up, but it takes a little bit of time. So, you know, you can uh, often wait 12 months from the investment decision, even in fast cycle shale, see the benefit of that investment decision in terms of production. Right. And so that engine has been revving up and we're really starting to see that production growth hit uh, the back half of the year here. Um, but then on the demand side, 
we saw demand move up very, very quickly with the, uh, with the war in, in Ukraine. Immediately, we went from being underutilized in our LNG export facilities to maximally utilized. And very quickly after that, it became clear that U.S. petrochemical production was going to maximize utilization uh, because they're much more cost competitive with a much lower gas input price than what Europe was seeing. And so, and, and then on top of that, there has been a major um, weather benefit to natural gas demand this year, where we went from a very cold winter, particularly um, cold late into the winter and early spring, and immediately flipped a switch to a very hot summer. And, and you couldn't ask for anything more if you're trying to sell natural gas. And so the, the demand comp next year is going to be very, very tough here in the U.S. Um, it's going to take a while to bring on incremental LNG capacity. Um, you know, weather has more downside than upside in terms of demand. And there's not a lot of upside to industrial demand either. And so when you, when you look at those pieces, there's much more downside uh, potential for natural gas in the U.S. next year. And therefore, perhaps even more of a bifurcation uh, mm -hmm. versus international gas. Okay, interesting. So let's move to the climate transition. Do you think hedge funds can actually contribute to this as a byproduct of their trading? Yeah, I, I do. I do. Um, you know, I mean, when you're taking a position um, to engage with a company uh, to go long in order to change it, um, you're taking an inherently risky position in that you are basically hoping that that security that you're engaged with is actually going to have positive return mm -hmm. over the time that you own it. Um, however, in a, in, a, uh, in a space like oil and gas that has many, many challenges to its uh, ability to generate return, not the least of which is the, you know, is the positions of Russia and Saudi Arabia and their unpredictability and the realization that in order for the planet to survive, uh, we do have to use less and less of this product going forward, or at least it has become a smaller and smaller part of world GDP. I think everybody realizes that. Mm. So it, when you think about the oil and gas space as a place to make money, uh, I think it's extremely challenged uh, on the long side for, for a variety of reasons. It just doesn't make sense to me to be heavily invested in a product that everyone is trying to use less of over time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's far better places to go. So that all said, how do you uh, uh, go long and engage without taking the risk of the sector. And the way you do that is you invest in a market neutral hedge fund that in fact negates the risk of being invested in the sector. So you are not net invested in oil and gas. And so that allows you to, uh, to attempt to engage without taking the risk of being on the sector. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. this is really, really important. Also avoids a, a tremendous potential conflict of interest because if you're long one of a, a, an oil and gas company and they say that they're trying to change and you're invested in them, um, uh, but in the end, you know, the vast majority of the cash flows come from oil and gas, you're kind of a little bit conflicted if you're thinking of like, how do I want as a citizen or as an asset manager to affect public policy? Mm -hmm. um, can I really advocate for a carbon tax or carbon regulation if it's going to harm the companies that I'm invested in because they're still overwhelmingly oil and gas? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we think that by investing in a market neutral hedge fund, you get to engage without taking the risk and you eliminate uh, a potential conflict of interest that you might have um, yeah. Yeah. as an owner. 
And James, do you think investors actually care about this or is it all about returns and not your investors specifically, but, you know, in general, is this something that investors actually care about? Oh, I, I think they care about returns first and foremost, you know, but, but anyone is a citizen of the planet, um, you know, I think I would hope uh, would care about uh, the level of emissions going forward. But it is, it is a conundrum if you set yourself up as a fiduciary to be in one direction and as a citizen of the planet to be in another direction. I do think it creates this, this conflict. Do you think um, the investor community pays more attention to these issues and cares more compared to when you actually started? Oh, definitely. And <laughs> back in, in, in 2004, there was, uh, you know, there was um, uh, rampant denialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the uh, about climate change, and this is a really interesting dynamic that's happened. Right, is that one of the reasons you know the di- divestment became such such a popular tool? Right, is that you know the the companies themselves were deniers, right, and so there was no way to, in good conscience, stay in them if they didn't if they didn't recognize the facts. Uh, so divestment was really the only tool. Um, and then as the facts continue to get piled up and you see the, the terrible weather and climate just getting worse and worse and worse, mm-hmm. uh, it became undeniable. And at the same time, the companies realized that if they uh, at least tried or had uh, an element of greenwashing towards uh, transition, that they could win these investors back. Uh, and you know, it also helped that uh, recently that energy is the best performing sector. So you had investors that were basically saying, I'd love to be in this sector. Can you guys give me at least something to say you're transitioning so I can, you know, be in good conscience in your company? Yeah, yeah. And so and now they're potentially co-opted. So it's a very, very interesting uh, situation we're in right now. And more recently, you know, there's been criticism of divestment um, in areas of the industry. And, you know, some would say, well, if you actually do want to um, trade on the basis of, you know, ESG credentials, you should short those companies, you should actually bet against companies that, are, that aren't doing enough. Um, divestment's not enough. So, so, so I think the, the key thing when you're making an investment decision, you first and foremost, have to make money for your clients, right? You know, many of our clients have very important missions for society. Uh, you know, educating the next generation, as an example, mm-hmm. um, providing pensions for for workers who have been loyal to companies for a long period of time. And so the, we can't lose sight of the fact that the, the primary purpose, as James described, in a in a allocator coming to us is to make money to fulfill their mission. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so I think what investors have found is that including ESG metrics uh, as a kind of blind investment criteria or a quantitative investment criteria has not been a money maker. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then in addition, there's been a little bit of a crisis of people realizing that many ESG metrics don't actually make sense. That you can go to one provider and get one score, another provider and get a totally different score. Yeah. And, and so I think there's a little bit of a crisis in ESG investing. And then, and then on top of that, you add a question, which I think people are going to start asking here, which is do things like energy security or national interest play into ESG if you're an institution that sits within a particular country, right? So it's getting more complicated. Um, and, and where I think when it comes to the environment, we're likely to 
come out, and, are, and, and, and in many cases, allocators are starting to come out, is that you need to be at least constructivist with the companies that you interact with and own as a as a hedge fund investor, right? So, so it becomes increasingly important as we speak to companies to speak about these issues and to add our voice to the pressure for them to clean up their own backyard as much as they can. Mm-hmm. And, and that includes oil and gas companies. Mm-hmm. And, it inc- and it includes things not just about what they're producing, but um, you know, h- how are their operations, right? So, so a big issue right now um, within the oil and gas patch is methane emissions. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the nice thing about this is there can be some economic benefit to doing the right thing in terms of capturing that methane and selling it um, mm-hmm. that, that does coincide with the environmental benefit. And, and this is a huge environmental problem. Right. And so you can you can engage with a company on methane emissions and, and, and belong them and make a positive impact. And, that, and, and that's just one example. So I, th- I think there's a lot of evolution happening right now with the coincidence of this sort of crisis of ESG performance, ESG metrics, yeah, issues yeah. of national security, et cetera, that's going to cause a real change as it sorts itself out. James, do you think that shorting should count as ESG? Can it be part of ESG? Oh, a- a- absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, to the degree that being long uh, in oil and gas security, um, uh, you know, if that in some way contributes to emissions, if that is in some way financing the company, if that is in some way a bad thing, um, you know, uh, shorting would be exactly the opposite of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, to the effect, to, to the degree that buying a company, uh, you know, decreases their cost of capital, shorting a company would have exactly the same impact. Sure. Um, so, uh, we think accounting demands that. And, you know, the arguments against counting shorting uh, are really not uh, logical. You hear that, well, shorting a company never removed a ton of carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, and that may be true, but owning a stock um, never contributed a ton of carbon to the atmosphere, nor did selling that stock actually sure. decrease one either. So we think that argument is specious. Uh, um, uh, but, we, you know, a, as we mentioned, right, the the the, the what shorting allows you to do is to actually be long other oil and gas companies without taking the industry mm-hmm. risk and therefore being able to engage yeah. Uh, yeah. Without, with, you know, not being conflicted um, and not taking the risk. And that's why, that's why we think that allocations to uh, neutral hedge funds can perhaps be the strongest way to get engagement going. Uh, and the wisest way for uh, investors thinking of trying to do so. And this debate over um, ESG and engagement is happening um, in finance against the backdrop of a big debate in US politics where ESG has become quite controversial in some quarters. What do you make of that debate and does it affect things from your perspective I, I guess I'd just say that the state of U.S. politics is borderline insane right now. So, so trying to sort of divine the anti-ESG movement that you've seen in some states, you know, to try to try to extract that from the general political climate, I think is 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 really really difficult right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Matt, I don't know if you want to add to that. Sure. So. It's nice when you have 
specific policy um, in the U.S. because the legislative process has become so difficult that once you have a policy, it tends to have some duration to it. And so the uh, quite misnamed um, in Inflation Reduction Act, which is actually some probably pretty good industrial policy branded in a different way, um, has really set a nice framework uh, more so on the alternative energy space mm-hmm. where I think you'll have some stability in alternative energy policy for some time to come and will create a backdrop that is much more investable versus the prior environment where a lot of these policies that have previously been put in place were up to expire um, or were clearly insufficient to move the needle. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that's the biggest thing policy-wise in the U.S., is that uh, it's rare when you get a major policy event, but when you do, uh, it can give you that um, stable investment backdrop for a period of time. Okay, great. My final question to you both uh, is a slight change of topic. So you are a rare example of a hedge fund that has actually executed a succession plan. James, you founded the firm in 2004. Matt, you joined about 10 years ago and took over last year. Um, so maybe you could explain, you know, how you brought that about and why is it so rare in hedge fund terms? Let's start with you, Matt. Sure. Uh, so, you know, I think the key thing is that I came into the firm at a time that James really was willing to hand over responsibility as quickly as I could take it. Um, and James was very free with that. And so, so one of the issues you have with succession, I think in a lot of firms is that you have a all-star manager who keeps a tight rein on their thought process uh, mm. and on the decision-making process. So when I joined Hyde, I was able to learn uh, the process quickly. And by the beginning of 2013, I was already managing the portfolios. And so you know, by the time we did a controlling interest transition, like we did last year, we already had uh, eight or nine years behind us of stable operating roles. I was portfolio mm-hmm. manager. James was focused on investor relations and operations, right? And, and, and that really, you know, that transition to being the portfolio manager, that was far harder than the actual um, transition of, of, of controlling stake. And so, and so that's the first thing from my perspective that we were able to, able to get that done. And then I think, you know, the second issue that you often have is, you know, an economic one. It often makes more sense for a successor to go and, and start their own fund um, and while I'm not going to talk about uh, James and I's economics on a on a public po- podcast, I will say that you know that's one of the issues that you know that that many have faced. That I think if you're going to do a transition, you have to make sure you get right. James, how was the transition from your perspective? Uh, you know, far smoother than I could have ever imagined. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, th- throughout my career, I'm 59 years old, and I've been in a variety of different. Uh, organizations and, and and risen up through levels of responsibility at many of them. And, you know, when you see talent, you need to let it run. Right. And that that's really, really important. And to and to have, you know, the degree of humility, um, you know, in order to let others uh, succeed. And I, and I really, really think that's important um, and it's been key here. Matt and James, thank you very much for joining me on AFI today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thank you to James and Matt. Please head to the AFI website now to read my five takeaways, 
And remember to sign up to the weekly AFI email, spread the word to industry colleagues, and follow us on LinkedIn for more updates. Until next time.